thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. We all remember hearing about drowsy drivers who have been involved in horrific collisions. Whether these occurred on the waterways or the roadways, the results are tragic and often could have been prevented. This underscores the importance of not only communication with our patients regarding the dangers of drowsy driving, but also reminds us of the many ways that healthcare can interface with the legal system. Dr. Ramesh Sachdeva is a practicing sleep and pediatric critical care physician. He completed his legal education and obtained a JD cum laude from Marquette University Law School, where he subsequently served as an adjunct professor of law for several years. Dr. Sachdeva has a specific interest in the intersection of medicine, healthcare quality, and law. Please note that this is not legal advice. This discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal advice or legal opinion. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Kosla, and really appreciate this invitation from yourself and the American Academy of Sleep Medicine to have a discussion on this podcast of this very exciting and emerging area of legal issues and the intersection with sleep medicine. Uh, again, before we begin, I just want to reiterate uh, the point you made that everything in this podcast is not intended as legal advice, nor as legal opinion, nor as legal services. Rather, its sole purposes is only education and to highlight from an educational standpoint the intersection of sleep medicine and law. So I have to tell you, when I was fresh out of fellowship, I attended an APSS. I think it maybe was a panel discussion on legal issues and sleep medicine. And and honestly, it scared me. <laughs> I was, I think, a new attending <laughs> and they talked about all these issues. And I think you may have actually been on that panel. So let's let's kind of start <laughs> start broadly, right? And, and talk about how many ways and how is it that a sleep clinician may interface with the legal system? Yeah, uh, thank you, Dr. Kosland. And I'm sorry that the panel came across <laughs> as scary. Uh, uh, and actually, that's, I think that's an important takeaway point from this podcast. That the purpose is that as we learn more about the intersections in these two fields, law and medicine, uh, particularly sleep medicine, I hope that we can continue to demystify many of these concepts that may scare us or get us more apprehensive so that we can actually make a difference and shape the future direction of law and policy. So going back to your question, uh, you know, the way I think about this is that uh, I think the best way to consider the intersection of these two areas is to look at this in five distinct spheres or five distinct uh, elements. Okay. The interaction as it relates to civil, uh, the civil cases, criminal cases, our role as clinicians, as experts in sleep medicine, our role as policymakers in sleep, and a fascinating area of drowsy driving, which I think touches on many of these mm. other elements. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so let's take them one at a time. Tell me about civil. Yeah, thank you. So I think when we think of um, how a clinician, a sleep physician, or any clinician in the sleep, or matter of fact, across medicine, may run into legal issues, the first thing that comes to mind is a civil 
situation. Mm. And the classic example is medical malpractice. Uh, we've seen a patient, there's unfortunately been an adverse outcome, and there's a lawsuit alleging negligence. That's mm. the classic, uh, most common, probably the most common area of, in, of uh, where the clinician may run into a legal issue. And just building on the negligence aspect, uh, I think that's a discussion in itself. But it's important to remember that there are four key elements that need to be met. Duty, breach, cause, and harm. Hmm. That's okay. duty to the patient, a breach from the standard of care, a causality, and harm. And as we go forward, I think, I hope we have a chance to discuss, Dr. Khosla, this really an interesting area that's emerging. We're all confronted with artificial intelligence these days. And yes. in the AI world, how I think AI is going to shape uh, the future of um, medical malpractice and negligence potentially. See, now that is something that I think is is murky, right? I mean, is this is this medicine? Is it a device? You know, how do we how do we figure this out? Yeah, you're exactly right. And some of this is emerging and there aren't any good answers. Mm. So let, let's let's take it. Let's uh, let's play this out. So uh, we all one view or the other using artificial intelligence, whether it's in our apps, phones, uh, and particularly in the healthcare area, we are you know seeing more and more of how artificial intelligence is being embedded into medical records mm. and other sorts of processes. For example, in the sleep study environment, uh, many of the sleep study initial interpretations may be augmented with AI technology. So as you correctly point out, the fundamental question becomes is if under the negligence theory, if there's an if there's an adverse event to a patient, is this classic medical malpractice, meaning there was a standard of care which mm. was breached, or is this a device failure? And the relevance importance is that if it's a device failure, the legal standard typically changes from uh, the classic negligence analysis to what's called a strict liability uh, analysis with punitive damages. So in other words, there's an entirely different way of analyzing that. Is this medical malpractice, the way we think of it, or is it a medical device failure, as you point out? The other interesting point I do want to mention is that you know, a lot of medical malpractice cases are based upon how we practice care in a region and or maybe within a certain country potentially. Mm. Uh, but as AI comes further and further, the standard of care could change, right? So uh, what's the best practice may now be readily available. That information may be readily available, not just within a state, but across the country and even at the international level. So does this ever become um, a criminal issue? You know, in itself, it does, I don't see a connection in the, uh, from the AI uh, perspective, but it's an interesting case, not about other criminality, but rather about this concept, what's called in the legal uh, education, a training is called as a respondent superior, mm. meaning that the employer may be liable for actions of their employees. And that's an interesting case. It's the, it's the Taylor case from state of Washington from 2013, where, um, where there's a robotic surgery going on. And at the end of the day, there's an adverse outcome. And the concern is that where does the liability rest? Is it with the surgeon 
or the device manufacturer? And further, what's the liability or the culpability, if you may, of the hospital, which actually purchased that robotic device? So uh, it's not necessarily criminal. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, there is this uh, further expansion on the scope of culpability in the, in the civil sphere, in the lawsuit. So then could would that then apply to, let's say, our sleep technologists that are up all night? And if they, you know, get into a motor vehicle collision on their way home, is that similar? That's, that, that, that's a great point. And, you know, um, you're... Let me just try to address it uh, by highlighting two points. First of all, I know you mentioned about the criminal interaction with sleep medicine. And first of all, uh, you know, I think the basic doctrine is that for any action to be criminal, two elements have to be met, which are called as actus rea and mens rea. Actus rea meaning an act has to happen and mens rea meaning there has to be an intent. And and hopefully we'll have a chance to discuss this, but this this that really goes into this area of sleepwalking and violence and potentially sexual assaults related to which could have a defense of sleepwalking and the forensics that go in. So that's where the criminality end of things comes in. But going back to your prior question uh, in terms of the sleep tech, really, you know, what you're really asking is more about drowsy driving. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's highly state-specific. So the two states that I'm aware of uh, are New Jersey and Arkansas. And in both these states, there are regulations where somebody who is extremely sleepy, typically defined as 24 hours or more of lack of sleep, if that person ends up in an accident, uh, that accident or that culpability through that accident could rise to the level of a criminal action. Mm. Uh, Now, What you're asking really is that at that point, what's the liability of, say, a sleep lab or or, or the employer of that uh, person? And that's uh, that's a fascinating area. And, um, you know, um, there's no specific case I'm aware of on that point, but there are many related cases from across the U.S. where in other industries, whether it's the McDonald fast food chain to other sorts of industries, where an employee has been working very long hours and then runs into an accident, Mm. could there be some imputed liability to the employer? And there are many cases which do suggest that that could be the case. And as a matter of fact, um, a lot of our rules for resident work hour restriction, which we are familiar with through the ACGME, a lot of those actually comes from this case from New York called the Libby Zion case, which uh, led to a legislation in New York for duty hour restrictions and subsequently at a national level. And that's why many, re- not many, but all residents now have to ensure that as part of their training, they do not exceed a certain number of hours at work. So tell me about that. I'm, I'm unfamiliar with that. There have been several uh, cases over the past many years in states across the country where an employer has been found liable or responsible from a civil standpoint, not criminal, from a civil standpoint for the action of the employee after work hours. So the classic example is uh, a person is working late night as part of their job Mm. or working overtime and then it's driving home. So they are out of their work environment. 
So they are a free actor on their own and they're driving and they run into an accident. And a third party gets injured. So can this third party, of course, they may have a case against the person who injured them, but can this third party have a case against the employer who they have no connection with directly? Uh, particularly because the employee has an accident outside their work environment. So there are states which have, uh, there's cases which suggest that the employer may be responsible vicariously or indirectly of, uh, because they required the employee to work long hours. So this is in many industries. Uh, as it relates to healthcare, there's an interesting case from Illinois where a resident is driving home after a long shift, has an accident, and essentially claims that this person was uh, required to work long hours. Mm. But specifically, this, the, the, a really important landmark case is the Libby Zion case from New York. Okay, so I'm unfamiliar with that. Tell me about the Libby Zion case. Yeah, so the, the Libby Zion case was a landmark case in the healthcare area where this patient was brought to an ER in New York and unfortunately had an adverse outcome. Amongst other things that were looked into, one of the elements that was alleged was that some of the physicians taking care of this patient had been up, had not slept for mm. a very long time. And we all know that long hours have been the hallmark of medical education. And, uh, you know, people have said that that's part of the process of medical education training. But in this case, uh, that was identified that could that have potentially led to this adverse outcome because of impacting judgment mm. and response time and so on. And, and although legally that was never really proven per se uh, in the case, um, it led to much greater awareness of the problem uh, that Physicians in training particularly spend very long hours and maybe up more than 24 hours at mm. times. Uh, and that subsequently, after a lot of policy changes uh, and policy uh, advocacy and so on, led to the new rules and changes in the rules by the ACGME, which led to duty hour restrictions, which currently are in effect. So a trainee uh, in the US cannot be continuously on duty for an extended period of time. There are specific hours which they have to log in and record and record to make sure that uh, they have not been up for too long. So you know what I find funny about this is, so I came up kind of when this was first starting. So I was, um, when I was a resident, I didn't have the work hours, but then when I was a fellow, the residents had the work hour restriction, but then the fellows didn't. <laughs> so that we had to sort of pick up their slack. But then what happens with just, you know, attending physicians? Are there any rules about work hours? That, that That's a great question. That's a great question. And it uh, and this, like I said earlier, I think this is an evolving area of policy. And uh, I, I think the point you just made is so important because it underscores how sleep clinicians, how we can hopefully influence the policies of the future. Mm. Right now, as you know, uh, even though many of these ACGME rules apply to trainees, there are no formal rules for attending physicians right. or after training what happens. So uh, right now it's an, uh, it's an open question, but I suspect as time goes on, there may, I would not be surprised if there are similar 
rules that may emerge in the future because many other industries have such rules, like the trucking industry and so on, as you know, has rules as to how long somebody can drive and Pilots in the airline industry have rules of ensuring that there's rest between flights and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you phrase it that way, it is kind of odd that healthcare workers don't have those same regulatory restrictions. Indeed, and uh, you know the entire medical education in the field. There's so much of tradition that spans decades and centuries, <laughs> so it takes time to make changes. And also, as more research emerges in the sleep area. Uh, I think it's going to further influence uh, policymaking uh, in the days ahead. Okay, so you've touched on a few things, right? You've touched on these intersections between sleep and the legal system. So we've talked about civil and criminal and sort of this responsibility for people that we employ in, in some sort of fashion. Um, but in, and when you were talking about how sleep can advocate, it makes me wonder about another way that we interface with the legal system, and that's um, expert witness um, work. I have a couple of friends that do this. I've never done that. And I didn't know if that was something, is that common for sleep physicians? I, I, I think you raise an important, really important question of the role of clinicians and sleep physicians in particular as expert witnesses. Uh, I'm not sure what percent of sleep physicians uh, provide expert testimony. Uh, my guess is it's probably a small mm. uh, number. Uh, having said that, I believe that's an area by which we can really help influence uh, not just the legal cases and provide expertise, but also help shape policy. Mm. So uh, I, I think uh, historically physicians, there's an apprehension of going into a court or being able to provide that expert testimony. But I would encourage um, encourage all, all my colleagues to really embrace that. That's really important for us to do that. For example, uh, some of the areas where expert testimony uh, ha- has been provided has been in what's called as the sleepwalking defense mm. or parasomnias, right? And this goes back to the criminal uh, area of what we were discussing. So as you know, as part of the parasomnias, there are situations where somebody could be sleepwalking and through that process, there could be uh, an accident, some violence uh, through some of the parasomnias uh, and potentially sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. And there have been cases where a sleepwalking defense has been put forth. Because remember going back, we talked about actus rea and mens rea. So for, for for a situation to be criminal, there has to be not just the action, but the intent. Mm. So if somebody is sleeping when that action was performed, they cannot be intent. So, but we've seen both sides of this, right? Because we've seen that one, that RBD, I think maybe in Canada, and you can sort of elaborate on that one, versus um, there was something just a few years ago where some guy on a plane was touching an adolescent girl and um, said that he had RBD, and then that was disproven. Right. So there are two parts which you need to think through this. So one is that if somebody indeed is sleeping at that point, and there's a parasomnia and an action thereafter, whatever that whatever that action is, uh, violence, sexual assault, whatever that a- that adverse action is, if that person is actually sleeping then by definition, there's no intent for that action. Mm. So that could be a viable defense. Having said that, 
as I reviewed many of the cases that are out there, uh, there's only a very few instances where that defense has been successfully been accepted. Mm -hmm. uh, those cases tend to generally uh, be ruled in the favor of the plaintiff or the person who's been uh, adversely been injured, if you may. But um, going back here, the other thing to consider too is, um, I think this is embedded in your question is, what about the foreseeability? Mm. In other words, if somebody knows that they have a parasomnia, should they have taken reasonable steps to protect themselves from being in a situation where that violence or that sexual assault or that adverse action occurred? And if you take it further upstream as a treating physician, mm -hmm. what is our responsibility if we know that our patient has parasomnia? How, what's our duty then at that point? And that's a really difficult question because we have to balance our duty of privacy to the mm -hmm. patient, confidentiality to the patient, but also a potential duty to society and the public duty. So that has to be weighed uh, very closely. And uh, that's a little bit more defined in the psychiatry profession, I think, where mm. uh, if somebody, if the psychiatrist determines that, that an that his or her patient is an imminent threat to themselves or somebody else, they have a duty generally to report. But how does that translate into the sleep area? Uh, th th it's a very difficult question and it's a very case-specific question mm. and a state where this occurring is occurring, a state-specific policy question. Also, I do want to mention that uh, an entire area of new research is in sleep forensic sciences. Hmm. So when sleep studies are done, what's the ability of a sleep study to predict a certain behavior, a parasomnia? So that entire PSG forensics, that field, if you may, is in its very early stages. Mm -hmm. And as technology advances, and we were talking about artificial intelligence earlier, as some of these technologies advance, uh, I believe we are going to be seeing more of these defenses potentially being put forth. And that's a place where a sleep clinician could have a tremendous impact as an expert witness. So remind me of that RBD um, that happened in Canada with the violence. Yeah, so, so this was uh, several years ago where uh, the facts were that there's this individual who has a difficult, uh, challenging time at work, comes back, gets in his car and then drives a fair amount of a distance and ends up actually attacking another individual. Uh, I believe it was his mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a stabbing that occurs. And the defense was that uh, this person was sleepwalking because had no real memory of mm. what happened. Uh, and this gets challenged all the way through the Canadian legal system uh, and the defense put forth was that this was a sleepwalking defense. So it's really important. Again, uh, what's important, I think the important point to take away is because these cases become highly fact intensive mm. and fact specific. But the important message to take away is that all of us as sleep experts or sleep clinicians have a role of being able to go to court and be able to provide that expert testimony for these defenses. Uh, sleepwalking defense being one, which is important both for the plaintiff and for the defendant. We, mm. At the end of the day, it serves justice for everyone. So it's important that we don't shy away from this 
uh, responsibility, but rather embrace that responsibility and uh, be aware of some of the newer forensic sciences in sleep medicine that are emerging. So let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about how the legal system interfaces with sleep clinicians. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Create customizable practice exams with a new Sleep Cues, Board Review 2.0. Pulling from over 350 questions, this product allows you to tailor exams to best fit your needs. When you're ready, complete and pass a self-assessment exam to earn five continuing education credits. This product can be used again and again, reshuffling the questions to allow you to gain confidence and best prepare for your sleep medicine exam. Visit learn.asm.org to purchase. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Sachdeva about medical legal issues in sleep practices. Okay, so you kind of mentioned that some states have criminalized um, drowsy driving. Um, and I feel like there's something that is just on the on the skirts of my mind, and I can't quite remember what the name of it is, maybe um, in one of the eastern states. Yeah, of course, the two states that uh, you're referring to are Arkansas and New Jersey. And in New Jersey, there's actually a law called Maggie's Law. That's it. And yes. Maggie's Law, this was a very unfortunate uh, situation where uh, this individual, uh, young adult, is runs into an accident uh, by a truck, and the individual driving the truck has not slept for many, many, many hours. Mm. And uh, this goes through the legal system, uh, but importantly, again, highlighting the interaction of law and policy ultimately makes its way to legislation, and a new law comes in the books in New Jersey called Maggie's Law, which essentially makes it criminal for someone to be driving and having an accident. Meaning if somebody has an accident and they have not slept, mm. uh, I believe it's uh, 24 hours or more, that action could have a criminal impact, not just an action in tort, which means an injury. Mm. A typical injury would be a tort, uh, but this would be a criminal action. The big challenge, of course, as you can imagine, is uh, there, there are not too many cases that have been successfully litigated subsequently mm. because it's very hard to prove if somebody has not slept for 24 hours and if somebody's even had a few naps, right. that would be a viable defense. But that that law regulation is on the books within the state. Well, and I do kind of wonder if even just the presence of the law makes people recognize it. It elevates the importance of being safe behind the wheel and not being drowsy when you drive. Uh, indeed, uh, you're exactly right. And and further, these sorts of uh, laws and rules ra raise awareness. And then again, highlighting the interaction of law and policy lead to good policies as to, for example, uh, drivers who are driving trucks ar ar across the country are required to maintain certain logs of how much they're sleeping. Uh, many countries outside the US even uh, even the US, but even uh, more so like in countries like Australia have um, rest areas built in with ease of access where uh, people can have a quick nap so that people are not driving very, very long hours. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about drowsy driving. So, and, and this is what I struggle with. Is there a point where our responsibility um, as clinicians, where that ends and the patient's responsibility 
begins, meaning they have sleep apnea, you provide them with a prescription for CPAP, you ensure that they are, you know, adherent to care, but then they stay up for 24 hours and they hit a school bus. So is this sort of like joint responsibility? Is there sort of heavier on patient responsibility? I mean, how do you figure that out? Right. So um, I think the way to analyze this is in two, uh, two steps. The first is this concept of foreseeability. In other words, how likely is this patient in front of us likely to result in the situations you have described? Mm. So that foreseeability analysis has to be done. And at each situation, one has to weigh our commitment and requirement to confidentiality and privacy to our patient, which is a key responsibility as a clinician uh, to our patient, and then balancing it with the responsibility to public and society. Now, there are some states which do require that doctors report certain medical conditions as part of a state regulatory requirement. And uh, this continues to change. So I would encourage our listeners to um, make sure that they check in from in their state what the requirements are mm. at that particular point in time. Uh, but I would point, uh, Dr. Kos, I would point uh, yourself and our uh, audience to an article published in the Chest Journal from 2018. So it's a couple of years ago, but not that far, far back. So in 2018, and as of that point, there were eight states in the US, which include California, Connecticut, Delaware, Georgia, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, and Pennsylvania, hmm. which uh, the article lists as these are states that require doctors to report medical conditions. So, uh, so, it's, so, so the analysis here is, uh, in my mind, is uh, twofold. One is, is there a state requirement? And if there's a requirement, Clearly, that requirement has to be met. Mm -hmm. uh, if there is no requirement, then it becomes a very fact case based situation. And uh, there's no easy analysis for that. One just has to see it. It depends on the situation. So what I'm kind of wondering now, of course, I'm, I'm thinking about all of these things, right? <laughs> and so what I'm wondering is, um, we've talked about our sleep technologists, but what about our patients who come in for a sleep study? that require maybe um, a sleep aid or they leave early? What's our responsibility if they are involved in a motor vehicle collision on the way home? Once again, going back to our previous discussion, uh, there have been cases in other industries. We, uh, I know we briefly mentioned about the McDonald case mm -hmm. many years ago. Uh, and there have been other cases in other industries where it has been found that in this situation, there could be some culpability. And even in healthcare, if you think about this Illinois case where a resident is driving home after a long shift and has, and has an accident, there's an allegation that the institution, the hospital, uh, should have known better than to make this uh, resident work such long hours. So there's clearly a potential risk there. But what about patients, though? Right? The patient leaves early or they've taken a sleep aid. I'm not aware of any specific legal case on mm. point, but I think the important, I think an important step to do again in the analysis becomes the foreseeability uh, mm. concern, concern, meaning at that point, how awake is that patient? 
uh, going back. Uh, certainly, um, you know, ensuring that the person is awake enough to go home uh, at that point and drive home would be the safest uh, way to have some assessment if one wants to be careful. Um, because otherwise, there's always a potential risk. But mm. what you ask, there's no clear-cut answer. <laughs> but, but I think the important takeaway point for our uh, for our listeners is that we need to be aware that just because the patient or our employee in the sleep lab has left the premises of the sleep lab and has an adverse event like an accident, be just because they've had that event outside the four walls of our sleep lab mm -hmm. does not in itself give us complete 100% protection. That uh, it cannot be alleged that somehow we, we had a responsibility. Now, how much responsibility is there and so on is very fact-specific fact for mm. that situation. Well, when you mentioned foreseeability, you know, that's what made me think about, well, I mean, if they take a sleep aid and then they hop in the car two hours later, <laughs> you know, that is, is a different scenario than someone who takes a sleep aid, you know, prior to lights out and then has, you know, an eight-hour test. Uh, Dr. Kosta, you raise an important, very important point. And uh, in the analysis of foreseeability, uh, ultimately what it comes down to is how a jury would determine mm. that. And the standard that's generally used is a standard called reasonableness. Would a reasonable person in this situation have done the same thing? It comes down to a reasonable level uh, analysis. And that's another reason uh, I believe sleep clinicians, including all of us who are practicing in the sleep area, need to really uh, take an active role as experts mm. as to help influence policy, uh, provide uh, expertise as a sleep clinician in these sort of cases as expert witnesses, because by doing that, we can help shape some of the future directions where these standards may emerge. Because right now, there's no statute or rule uh, to, your, to the question you're asking. It's case dependent. Mm. And that case sets a precedent. And that precedent then becomes the standard by which the next case is evaluated. So that is a really good point. You know, I'm thinking about now, this is a few years ago, where something, you know, I think a patient had accused a technologist of, you know, touching them inappropriately. And they happened, I think, to have already started the video at that time. So it was disproven. But I feel like it could go the other way around, too, where if, a you know, somebody was being inappropriate, that was captured on video, too. And so it makes me think about, you know, safety within our own facilities. Right. And, and is this something where the video should start during the setup as opposed to at lights out or, some, or during bio calibrations? Right. Uh, another great question for which, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> I, I wish there was a specific answer. Uh, uh, again, one has to weigh the pros and cons of that situation. Having that sort of a video may be really helpful to prove or disprove certain allegations. Uh, but trying to put those videos, of course, there's a cost, there's mm -hmm. an effort that goes in. and One would need consent from the various people involved to video record them. So there's the pros and cons just like anything else. But, uh, and again, it has to be um, looked at from a case-by-case -case basis. So let's let's pivot a little bit and let's talk a little bit about um, 
this other intersection between the legal system and sleep clinicians. And I'm, I'm thinking more about like false claims. Uh, Dr. Kosa, thank you for bringing this up. This is a really important area of intersection of law and medicine, particularly sleep medicine, and rapidly growing. Uh, typically, when we think of this, this area of law, we think of rules such as the Stark rules, mm. which relate to self-referral, the anti-kickback statutes, which have a criminal component to it. But another area is the False Claims Act. The False Claims Act superficially could mean that there's a claim made to a governmental agency when the service was not provided. That's what's called a false claim. Mm. Uh, another nuance to this is a concept called key tam, key tam litigation, which really is another way of thinking of a whistleblower claim. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, and the whistleblower or the person bringing forth the key tam can actually recover a significant amount of um, uh, economic benefit from this. So there's an incentive to do this, and the policy basis is that we want to we don't want this practice. We don't want false claims as a society, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to minimize this. So we want to bring this to light. So that's the typical way we have thought of False Claims Act. Now, there are two interesting nuances to this. One is uh, there's been some cases, actually not in the sleep medicine, but mostly in the nursing home area. These are little older cases. But in these cases, the allegation was that the quality of care being provided was so low or so poor that in effect, the claim of service was not met. Huh. So even though it was met in theory, it was not met in practice and therefore it met the False Claim Act threshold. A really a fascinating way to think about the intersection of medicine, healthcare quality and law. Mm. Now coming to uh, sleep medicine, there's an interesting case. Uh, it's the case, um, um, from the American Sleep Medicine. Uh, it's from Kentucky from 2013. So it's about 10 years old. Hmm. But the key facts in summary were that in this situation, the sleep technicians did not have the requisite certification. Ah. And because the sleep tech did not have the requisite or the required certification, the claims made for the services provided by that sleep tech or the cumulative team was a false claim. Okay. Uh, and this raises a lot of other questions that, uh, uh, what about individuals reading sleep studies, uh, PSGs? Do, do they all need to be board certified? Huh. Uh, uh, what sort of certification and ongoing certification is needed for sleep technicians, physicians, and other individuals in sleep labs and sleep clinics. There's no answer to that question, but this case is a fascinating case. And the American Sleep Medicine was a large group uh, based out of Florida, uh, but the case itself uh, came came in Kent came through in Kentucky, <laughs> and there was a sizable amount of damages that emerged in the millions uh, in the settlement, oh, both wow. overall and also to the key TAM individual who brought forth this uh, claim or who. Uh, who brought for this claim to light. 
So that, you know, this kind of worries me. You know, we, we're facing a, a tech shortage um, and, and some of our states are very, very restrictive about who is allowed to be a sleep technologist. Um, and, and so it makes me what, what you've said about advocacy really resonates you know, so how can we then, you know, we have this concern about like sleep techs, for example, right? Um, but what you're saying that this is a, a pretty significant legal exposure, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and of course, I think um, now this was in one situation doesn't mm. mean it'll apply to every state. But right. again, uh, there's a risk. There's always that risk once such a case is out there. So, so I think the question you're asking, I think, is like, so what can we do about right. it? Right. How can we shape policy? Yeah. Yes. So, so I think um, there, there are a couple of areas by which we can impact this. The first is to build awareness, to make ourselves more knowledgeable. And podcasts like the one we're having today with the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and yourself is one step in, in that direction, to build awareness. I hope there are other venues by which this information can be put forth so people are aware of what's going on because a lot of a lot of this activity occurring in the legal realm mean people may not even know about that in the medical side so that intersection between medicine and law mm. the second is the second area is to embrace opportunities for advocacy and for serving as experts uh, most of us in the clinical side, uh, there's a hesitancy. And as you mentioned earlier, when we started, uh, you were a little bit apprehensive <laughs> that, uh, uh, that panel about legal issues discussion at the ASM many years ago. So how do we overcome this? How do we demystify some of these concepts? Mm. Uh, I think that's really important. And in doing so, I would hope that more sleep physicians, sleep clinicians are more comfortable in leveraging opportunities that come their way to serve as experts. Mm -hmm. This will not only facilitate justice for plaintiffs, defendants, the legal system, but also help shape law. And good law influences good policy. And good policies, in turn, shape good law. So it's intertwined there. And the third area is um, organizations like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, uh, I think these are great organizations that, you know, that clinicians can leverage uh, and provide a platform for us to move that advocacy forward. Because the point you raise is so important. On one hand, our duty, our responsibility to our patients is to provide services, right? The high quality services, right? And this could be challenging in in situations of staff uh, limitations. Uh, lack of availability of trained staff, particularly in rural areas and underserved areas. And on the other hand, making sure that we avoid legal challenges that could come forth in doing so. So it's always that balance. And, and I feel like, you know, they're there for a reason, right? We, we want to adhere to a certain standard. But if that standard becomes impossible to meet, then perhaps there needs to be advocacy and um, maybe just revisiting why that policy exists. And, and again, I'm sort of stuck on this idea in New York State. It's a very, very, very restrictive law where you need an associate's degree in polysomnography to be a sleep tech. 
And so they only have 500 sleep techs to serve like 19 million people. And and half of those sleep techs don't even work as sleep techs anymore. They've either retired or they're doing something else. And so, you know, it's really hard to serve a huge population like that um, unless there can be at least a conversation about how can we continue to deliver optimal services while also, right, being able to have staff um, to serve our patients. Excellent point. And a real good example recently, which comes to mind is through the COVID-19 pandemic, Mm -hmm. how telemedicine services have been expanded. So as you know, prior to COVID-19, the practice of telemedicine was limited based upon many regulations in states and licensing requirements. And through the COVID-19 pandemic, because people couldn't go to see their physician because of obvious reasons with the pandemic going on, telemedicine rules were relaxed a little bit to allow uh, interstate activities to occur. And now that we've emerged from the COVID-19 pandemic, where is that future going to go? That's a little unclear. But I think the areas that are shaping this, uh, you know, we couldn't get into that uh, to a large extent uh, in this discussion. But what's happening even outside the U.S. at an international level? How are those practices shaping our practice and vice versa? Mm. And that's really important in today's environment because telemedicine, there are no boundaries. Uh, The clinician could be in any part of the globe providing care. Uh, And we talked about artificial intelligence earlier and the AI revolution that's occurring could once again have the globalization concept of medicine and having international standards of care. So how will all the shape sleep meds in the future uh, is a little unknown, but also a tremendous <laughs> opportunity for sleep clinicians to be part of to help shape that future. Wow. You've given us a lot to think about. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us today and helping us to better understand the potential legal issues that can come up in a sleep medicine practice. Thank you, Dr. Kosla. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.